that building full of fright, I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello. Hi. At the devil's ball. At the devil's ball. Welcome to Dispatchist, a cheerful conversation about hell and some other stuff. I'm Jacob. I'm Victoria. I'm Jamin. So, if you're listening to us when we post this episode, there's about a 31% chance that you're mourning the death of your only begotten son of God. So, this is kind of a spoiler, but we don't want you to feel sad. This is a three-movie franchise, and he's the male lead. (laughs) Happy Easter, everyone! It is. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Apropos of nothing, you might be surprised to find out that I have quite a large stack of books about hell. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Quite a large stack of books about hell. Mm-hmm. And Jaman gave me a sweet little belated birthday present. It was uh, some photographs of my dog, who was, when he took the photographs, a cute little pitador chocolate lab pit bull mix. Really adorable, very cute. Now he's extremely heavy. Aww. Um, I've never heard of a pitador. That sounds like, like a luchador or yeah, a matador. Along those general lines. I was uh-huh. thinking someone that dealt with black olives. <laughs> <laughs> So, he loves them. I just tossed the photographs onto a desk, and I have to send you this photograph. He landed on a picture of my copy of. <laughs> he landed on my copy of A History of Hell by Alice Turner, <laughs> and it's just framed perfectly. So I want to share that with you and with everyone. <laughs> He's sinfully delicious. He is, and the best jokes on a podcast are visual. <laughs> <laughs> I've got another visual joke. I don't know if you recognize this book. Oh, yeah, that's my book. <laughs> guys, guys, it's my book. Are we going to discuss a graphic novel on the podcast? <laughs> yes, I'm so glad that I remembered that you had loaned this to me because I feel like now I, I, I understand more about the harrowing of hell. Yeah. And I... And I kind of have a crush on the little Jesus in here. He looks kind of like a plushy version of Frank Zappa. So who's the, the artist on that one? Uh, Evan Dom is the author. Maybe is Evan Dom both the author and the artist? I, I guess. So. Well, I wonder. Mm-hmm. So this is a very pretty little indie book, uh, indie graphic novel of the harrowing of hell. Follows the story of Jesus as he descends into hell. But it's a very large-eyed, sad, gentle Jesus in a context where he he doesn't really seem to belong very well. And he's always set against these vast, sweeping, grand and harsh landscapes and hellscapes and things. And it's a really effective story. I shared this one with my mother, who's not a comic fan, and she she liked it a lot. It's like little urchin Jesus. So I guess that kind of introduces our topic for the week, which is the heroine of hell. Eggs. Oh. Yes, but... <laughs> The harrowing of eggs. But before then, or after then, or at the same time as then, contemporaneously with then. Concurrently. Yeah. Happy Easter, like you said. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Are are you supposed to be happy on Easter? This is something that I struggle with. 
Yes, Easter is the beginning of the church year, really. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the, the high point of it, the center, central celebration of the church. My favorite moment of the entire church my favorite moment of the entire church year was during the Easter midnight mass when in the Episcopal church it would all be very dark and then the priest would throw open the light and before the organ started he'd say, Christ the Lord is risen and everybody would say, the Lord is risen indeed and then all the Episcopalians would reach in their pockets and pull out their car keys and jingle their car keys at the altar. What? What? <laughs> And it was so beautiful, but I don't really know what it was saying. Wow. So like key party, question mark, Uh, conspicuous consumption, question mark. (laughs) It was supposed to be bells, but who carries bells in their pockets? Me? Well, Krampus does. Oh, Krampus. Fair. But that's a different holiday. Hmm. But it should be. There should be a Krampus. What is Easter's Krampus? Is there like an evil anti-bunny? See, I think we need to work on this. We need to establish who is the Krampus of Easter, because I feel like I would be way more interested in Uh, Easter. The whole Easter thing is like superiority over death. So the the enemy here is death. And we're not even talking like the the personification of death. You you know, where's the the cowl and has a scythe. It's just boring old death. We, we won. (laughs) Yeah, most of the antagonist <laughs> characters, I mean, there's the passion play. And so you've got like some real villains like Judas and Pontius Pilate and mm. and the crowd scenes and things like that. So there really isn't like a supernatural evil at work here besides Satan. And he's vanquished. This is like a positive day. Christmas has dynamic tension. Mm. Okay. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show has dynamic tension. <laughs> but Easter Easter is a victory of light over dark. The The, the conflict is in the past. As a young Protestant girl who went to nearly every Protestant church, except for, I think, church, well, no, I think we did go to Church of Christ. I think I've been to every Protestant church as a child. I just always thought Easter was, like, it was really, really boring until you got home and you could search for eggs and eat candy. And then as when I got older, it just seemed really, really sad. Like, this is a really strange thing to be celebrating or thinking about, I suppose. Did your churches not have, like, a cookie buffet? <laughs> I, I feel like your church experience was very different from... Because I, I grew... I, okay, so I went to... Uh, I was a Methodist for a while. We were Methodist for a while. We were Baptist for a while. We definitely went to Lutheran church at least once. I went to a... Um, actually, probably uh, the happiest memories are the Episcopalian kindergarten I went to. Yeah. Uh, Presbyterian. We were Presbyterian for a while. My dad landed on Baptist, and I'm still not sure exactly why at some hmm. point. And so then that kind of sucked all the fun out of everything moving forward. So yeah, so I kind of like the whole celebratory aspect of Easter... I never really, like the, the religious celebratory aspect of Easter, I suppose I never oh. understood as a child. That's a bummer. You yeah. get to wear a pretty dress. That yeah, was my favorite you, part. It's true. Everybody likes a pretty dress. We did get, pre- we, we got dresses and we got, you know, flowers and, you know, had the Easter eggs and the candy. And that was fun. But I never liked the religious part of it. I never really saw the celebrate. It just seemed really still very dark hmm. and like. Like something to 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 be kind of uh, feel guilty about, like oh. you know, I don't know. Like this is something you have to live up to. Is that this person died for your sins? Oh, have some candy. That's rough. 
I think can also say, it, 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 as is my way as a child with most holidays, I also would tend to get food poisoning hmm. from something. Potentially bad eggs. Yeah, bad you egg. leave the eggs out in the yard long enough. Bad eggs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My mother... My mother would never let a holiday family tradition go. So we were hunting eggs until I was like 16. Um, See, I would do it to this day. I love decorating eggs and I love hiding eggs and I love finding eggs. One year, uh, my mother bought me this beautiful, like Martha Stewart collection, Easter egg basket. It was just very high and arched and it was like the cathedral of Easter egg baskets. And she filled it with artichokes. (laughs) (laughs) You almost said avocados. She filled it with Artichokes, and that was the best Easter ever. Yeah, you, you liked that. I love artichokes. Can I say the other disappointing thing about Easter? <laughs> Such a downer. Well, two things. I hate white chocolate because I got I got sick on it one Easter and then had to, to, to sleep next to my sister's Easter basket, which was full of white chocolate. And oh. then two, I hate ham. And ham, it's just like Easter for the Protestants is lousy with ham. Oh, weird. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Ham, ham, ham. Hmm. <laughs> we ours was all filled with like mimosas and Moscow mules. See, this is a better. This is a better way of celebrating the Easter. Sunday dinner was a, a good ham. I remember that, and and I remember like if it wasn't the fancy honey glazed, spiral sliced, you have a polite slice, and then you go fill up on avocados or something. I don't know. Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. I'm working out of our podcasting studio in the circle of the vainglorious. And the acoustics are just a little off here. They're always just a little off. Uh, when we recorded this episode, there wasn't a lot of news about hell. And then suddenly there was lots of news about hell. And we are really excited to talk about representation, protest, and satanic sneakers when we get back together. But I want to just mention this since there's only a few days left on this Kickstarter. mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarrita That's the opening for the video of Inferno Dante's Guide to Hell for 5th edition D&D a beautiful set of books for tabletop quests in the hell Dante inspired, and it's the first of a series based on the entire Divine Comedy. So please check this out on Kickstarter. It's by Atron Books. Just search for Inferno. The Kickstarter ends April 9th, so you may still have a chance to get in. Anyway, enough digression. Back to the intentional digression. Did anybody bring anything to the party? Oh, I have something very exciting. Ooh. Um... So, uh, have you ever heard of a Dutch liqueur called Advocat? Yes. <gasps> so, you know, Advocat. Yes. Do you know what it was originally made out of? Oh. Lawyers? Guns? Money? Eggs? Oh, okay. So, you get in the your- dark. Shot in the dark. <laughs> so, originally, it's a Dutch liqueur. Mm-hmm. Back when the Dutch uh, were in South America doing terrible things- they became really fond of avocados. <gasps> and yes. as you do, <laughs> you make I mean, liqueur out of avocados. I do. Yes. But one problem, when they got back to the Netherlands, unfortunately, they realized that they could not grow avocados there. 
and they searched for an alternate Fovocado. Something, yes, a Fovocado that would provide the same custardy texture and oh. the same yellow color. What? Oh, where so are we they going? landed on egg yolks. Oh God. Yes. So it's this this drink has everything. It has the gross out factor <laughs> plus colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> Plus avocados. It's, so, uh, but it's it's uh, as far as like it's a secret recipe because it's the same company that's been making it for um, hundreds of years. But uh, it's essentially egg yolks, brandy, and sugar. So is that part of the name too? I thought Advoca- it was like like an advocate, like a. It looks like it's A D V O A. Yes, A D V O C A A T. Yeah, advocate. The word for avocado is like, it has a different word, but I think it is a play on that word. Okay. We have to find out. Too bad we don't have anybody who's really interested in linguistics here. Yeah. Because they'd be all over this. Shame we don't have the internet to look this up. I know. I Mm. know. But um, but yeah, so um, I actually almost got on a drizzly and just sent everybody I know bottles of this (laughs) because it's not too expensive either. No. It's kind of tasty. It's, no, let me rephrase. It's an acquired taste. If you don't grow up like stealing this from your mom's liquor cabinet, you're never going to truly appreciate it. See, I feel like I the 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 two Dutch liquors that I know about are Jennifer mm-hmm. and the licorice liqueur, which is the best thing in the freaking world. I did not know about this. I knew about an Italian version that is called Vav that sounds very similar. Yeah, they're very eggnoggy, like pre-made mm-hmm. eggnog. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a Christmas thing, isn't it? I don't know if or this is one is. Or is it a year-round thing? Hmm. I think this one's a year-round thing because you can drink it chilled or warm. Uh-huh. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, like warm. I don't know. Uh, cust- it's just, yeah, anything described as custardy and warm... That does that that kind of bums me out. I'm not sure I can top that, but I brought some entertainment. Mm. Uh, being dismembered with great axes as innocent babies with holy noses watch. Again holy, with like, the noses. Like sacred oh. noses yes. or whole like blessed blessed noses. B- blessed noses? Well wait, my nose has two holes already. Well But it's not a blessed nose. Logically those are not hmm, maybe. Where does the nose end and the hole begin? It's true, like your nose really is just, it's just a a, a flap for a hole mm, with yeah. other holes. Mm. A, pair, a pair of tubes. Okay, mm. okay. Mm-hmm. But that, I think that diminishes the, the sacredness of the nose moment. Yes, let's take a, <laughs> like how you sort of pause, like, let's take a moment for the sacredness of the nose holes. Amen. Sorry. Blessed be the nose holes. Well, uh, in typical snacky fashion... The other day, while we were preparing for a wedding, we uh, we tried out some baked potato skins. They tasted pretty like baked potato skins. And I was like, what if we made baked avocado skins? <laughs> so you peel an avocado, mm-hmm. discard the avocado. This is very Roman already. I know you scarred, scarred the avocado. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you basically, they're vegan bacon cheese avocado skins. You fill the avocado skin with cheese and bacon. You put it under the broiler for eight to ten minutes, and here's the best part. When you're done, you throw the skin away and you eat the bacon and the cheese. 
It's actually, mm, yeah. See, so, do, yeah. With like, so it serves as like a spoon for yeah, the other things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it like holds it together. And it's then, a vessel. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you harrowed that avocado? No. Oh. No, and I'll tell you why later. Oh, okay. I'm not one for counting, but this is episode 12, an even dozen, and things that come in dozens are eggs. And on topic of eggs, uh, hell, how does that fit, you ask? I was going to. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Hey. (laughs) Wait, didn't we just say that? I'm so confused. Are we in an Easter vortex? Is this, oh my gosh, is this the resurrection? Like, is the resurrection like Groundhog Day? Am I getting those confused? Yes, Jesus comes out of the cave, sees his shadow, (laughs) and and there's six more weeks of Lent. No. Does that mean we can get to our topic? (laughs) Punxsutawney Christ is my ska band, by the way. Mm. Mm. So today's topic is the harrowing of hell, which happens on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, the day after Good Friday. This is the moment in the liturgical year when Jesus has died on the cross and is descended into the land of the dead, which if you've read your Joseph Campbell is, you know, one step in the hero's journey. He'll come back with wisdom and et cetera, et cetera. But it is kind of important, and I'm a church nerd, so I want to start with something a little unusual for us. This is a homily from about 180 AD. It's very old and very, I think, important for the day, and it'll it'll set the mood. Imagine that you're in a cave lit by fitful lamps. The stories of Jesus' dying are so recent that they're still fact, and the promise of him coming back is so recent that it's still in the near future and not some crazy myth. The priest is lit by a flickering lamp and begins reading... What is happening? Today there is a great silence over the earth, a great silence and stillness, a great silence because the king sleeps. The earth was in terror and was still because God slept in the flesh and raised up those who were sleeping from the ages. God has died in the flesh and the underworld has trembled. Truly he goes to seek out the first parent like a lost sheep. He wishes to visit those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death. He goes to free the prisoner Adam and his fellow prisoner Eve from their pains, he who is God and Adam's son. The Lord goes into them, holding his victorious weapon, the cross. When Adam, the first created man, sees him, he strikes his breast in terror and calls out to all, My Lord be with you. And Christ in reply says to Adam, And with your spirit. And grasping his hand, he raises him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. I am your God who for your sake became your son, who for you and your descendants now speak and command with authority those in prison. Come forth, and those in darkness have light, and those who sleep rise. I just really love that. Are we going to add a laugh track? No, but I'll probably add fire crackling or something like that. Mm. I like the fire crackling. Anyway, that was a bit serious, but I really like that passage. It does kind of frame the story well. I was surprised that nobody really knew about the harrowing of hell, though. Yeah, this, we were talking, and I think you've mentioned it, and I'd heard the term, but I don't think I knew what it was. And so I actually went to Google, and I typed harrowing, and I learned a couple of things. One, in tillage, 
which is preparing dirt for, for harvest. There's plowing and there's harrowing. And they're separate things and they use separate tools. Like plowing breaks up the dirt. Harrowing combs out the dirt and like really breaks everything up. So you can plow a field and you can plant. Or you can plow a field and harrow it and then let it sit fallow. And I was like, okay, now that I've learned this, I still like the harrowing of hell. What? I, but what? Yeah. And then I looked at you funny and thought you were kind of stupid because everybody knows about the harrowing of hell. It's in the Apostles' Creed. What? And that no, was when I learned. No, it's not. Yeah. And then I learned there was more than one Apostles' Creed. And that freaked me out. What? I'll- I would say I had no idea what it was either. Because in all of the churches that I went to as a child that were many in number, it was never discussed as a part of the Easter story. Yeah. It it was the crucifixion. There were, you know, the whole Jesus Christ superstar. Like, that's yeah. how I learned about, like, this is Easter. And mm-hmm. so Christ is crucified. He dies. A miracle happens, Ooh. and he comes back to life, and walks a, the earth, and then he, he ascends to heaven. And there's an awesome musical number at the end. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. There's yes. a lot of hippies uh-huh. that are dancing around. You know, there is, I don't know, I have to say in the movie version of Jesus Christ Superstar, I feel like it's actually Judas's story. I feel like Jesus Christ is a bit, he's a bit much. Yeah, and I, I feel think like you're Judas right. is, yeah, he's actually the real sort of like the person we're supposed to really identify with in that. Yeah, kind of the like God's patsy in, in, yeah. that, in mm-hmm. that sequence. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, who gets harrowed? Why do they get harrowed? Like, uh, walk me through this, please. Who's harrowing who? Yeah. And there's, an, there's another meaning of the word harrow. It's the same root as uh, harry, like the military maneuver, to to strike or to pester militarily. Wait. And it also means to raise, destroy, and plunder. Like, my mom had a harried day because I was a right, terrible child? Yeah. Same, same root. Same root. But like harried. Harried. Yeah. So the story actually kind of uses both meanings in in many ways. Because the story is so this was a time when Jesus needed an image makeover. We're in the year two hundred ish. Um the story the stories of the harrowing of hells, they have some scriptural background. They they go back into like two hundred BC apocalyptic texts. Um, the idea of the millennium and the raising of the dead and this great big battle between good and evil that would herald the end of the world and the beginning of the new one. Hmm. Um, I know that part. Yeah. So in this story, Jesus, who is a mortal, dies and descends into the land of the dead, which is what you do, what all humans do when they die. Now, remember that the idea of hell as a place of burning eternal torture is more recent um, that's mm-hmm. more of a like medieval or or beyond idea, and before then, most underworlds, particularly the Jewish underworld, was the the great gray, bleak, dusty wasteland. That's just where the dead were stored um, until the millennium or forever, depending. So there was no hell. This is um, we'll call it Hades. So Jesus goes to Hades and takes the basically the entire cast and crew of the children's illustrated old Testament and frees them, takes them out of the land of the dead and up to heaven. And maybe this is today, or maybe it's a thousand years from now, depending on like what moment you're looking at. And in, in old school theology, you can be both immediate and distant future at the same time. That's not a paradox. Hmm. 
So he plunders hell of its treasures, the souls of the of the dead. But at the same time, he, he shakes down hell, levels it, and is a new start, which is kind of a harrowing. Oh, there's um, the harrowing. He, he Yeah, it's kind of both. You destroy the structure of the ground. Yeah. And for me, this had been a part of almost every church service of my entire life, but I'm I'm Episcopalian, which is an Anglican tradition, which is basically a Catholic church with a lot more booze. So, and that makes sense because I, well, we were Methodist, which is very high church, and there's a fair amount of booze. But, okay, so let me run this by you. So when I went to church, uh, you had the crucifixion scene. Someone in their pretty dress, sang the Via Dolorosa. They rolled the rock over. Three days later, the rock is is rolled back, right? Yes. In your church, there was a crucifixion scene. Yeah, it's a... I don't know who wore the dress. Right. They rolled the rock over, hell got harrowed, and then the rock got rolled back. Is that how it works? Yes. In in, in the, the more Catholic versions, Jesus dies... He descends into the land of the dead to free the captives. And you'll see, you'll see language like that. Set the, he came to set the captives free. That's, that's a fairly universal mm. idea. Um, but in the harrowing of hell, because he's mortal, he has to go to hell. But when he's there, he's able to free the blessed patriarchs. The, the, they're not baddies. They're just they're the, the good dead from years past. He's able to liberate them and, and set them free. And that is something that is tied to the older conception of hell, which is that hell is like just a storage place for the dead. Hmm. And it's not a place of endless torture. When you move forward 1,600 years to when the like mainstream Protestant denominations of today are starting to kick around, the idea of hell is very different. That's a hell of eternal torment. And the dead are conceived as dying and going immediately to their reward or fate. Very different cosmology, but that's the foundation of the, the later Protestant churches, uh, the Calvinist branches and things like that. And that's why my branch, which has just this kind of older liturgy, um, still holds on to this idea. I have, I have a lot of, I have a lot of <laughs> questions and thoughts okay. that have been harrowing me, let's say, because mm, this is the mm. first time this has been, this concept has been introduced into my um, yeah. understanding Same. of the whole Jesus story. So, the word harrow itself, I'm vexed by because on the one hand, there's a very um, meaning of, yes, like like riding the soil, like smoothing things out. Like there was there was something wrong here. Jesus is writing it by taking the, the righteous heathens. And um, I don't know if they would count as righteous heathens. I'm just throwing that in there because that's... That works. Okay. So the righteous heathens, you know, um, freeing them from hell, making that division... Um, but there's also the connotative meaning of like the whole plunder, despoil and cause distress. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so like Jesus is causing distress to hell, like he's, he's disrupting hell. And is that necessarily a good thing? Like we, like, I don't know, like, it's just a new way of looking at it for me. Like was, <laughs> like it was hell supposed to be disrupted? In this way, was there supposed to be a, disru- a division 
I love that picture that we were throwing around earlier where Jesus has like literally kicked down the door of hell and the devil is squashed under it, kind of struggling to get out from under the door. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of invasion. And I think that the the military version of harrowing kind of shows that this is like a massive disruption. It's so big that there are repercussions in Dante's Inferno. There's like a landslide in Canto 12 that happened because of the like shock waves that went through the entire structure mm-hmm. when Jesus broke down the walls. And it kind of fits in with the representation of Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar, even though those two things are not, you know, um, in any way essentially connected. But there is of like, is Jesus just being kind of a showboat? (laughs) Did he really have to do this? Um, And what are the repercussions of that? Are we still living through the repercussions of the disruption of hell? Interesting. So two of the three of us are pretty high-functioning, literate people. Damn it. (laughs) Damn it. <laughs> and again, we're from a different world. Um, so this is this this is a really like this is Jesus taking names, kicking ass, knocking down doors, pulling chains apart with his bare fists, and throwing the devil out of hell and taking over and establishing himself as a feudal overlord. Okay. Random timeline question. Yes. When did the theses get nailed to the door? In Worms. Because you said 1600. Timeline, in perspective, if around 1600, we're having this change in view of harrowing, it also goes to the whole reformations and schisms of around that same time, where we're Protestant, Armenianism, Calvinism, Poodleism. There's a couple of threads that aren't like immediate changes like calvin was an immediate change that was a, a lot of a lot all in one go mm-hmm. but the idea of hell being a place for the baddies slowly developed over like from 200 onwards okay and the idea of the devil so you remember the gimpy devil yeah. story mm-hmm. that kind of originates mm-hmm. in the harrowing of hell like the devil is like knocked under a door jesus beats him up, binds him in chains, and puts him in service to another demon. Um, this is like the beginning of the gimpy period of Satan. And that's like an early Middle Ages thing where we see him like tied up and burning on a spit or whatever. Hmm. But I think over the centuries, he frees himself until in the 1400s, you're getting like heresy fears and witch hunts and things like that. And then he's like more the enemy that prowls like a roaring lion sort of thing. So the devil is not bound anymore. Hell is not a place where Jesus would ever want to visit. There's no good people there anymore. So there's all these understandings of evil and the devil that have changed that make the harrowing myth not make sense anymore. Mm. Oh, I was going to say it, it makes perfect sense because it's kind of the, the Old Testament, New Testament thing where before everyone died, everyone went here. Now only evil people go here because all the good people have been harrowed out. Yeah, but you don't want mix. You don't want mixed messages. Um, That's a very like universal literacy. Yeah, and, and to come back to that, um, like I said, there was a big image makeover for Jesus early on because he was you know kind of meek and sweet in the Bible. I mean, he's got moments of rage, hmm. but um, he kind of needed a makeover to like be more kick-ass and more like photogenic. And so the harrowing of hell gave him a big action sequence that was kind of missing in the Bible proper. And this is kind of neat. Um, at the time, there were only two ways to really convey information to the masses, um, sermons and illustrations. 
And there was no like Kodak moment for the concept of forgiveness and resurrection and redemption. But the harrowing of hell gave a very easy to illustrate version of all three of those concepts. So it was a photogenic moment that let people communicate in simple graphics some very hard concepts. The early medieval period really needed that. Can I ask a question? And this is just because I really am wondering this. So in those illustrations, would your average person have recognized certain key figures like Adam and Eve and is it Bathsheba? Like, I can't remember who all the people are. Moses. Bathsheba. Would they have have been, been able to, like, those images are so iconic that when they show up in an illustration, somebody would be able to you scan can, that. You've got a naked couple, possibly with fig leaves. Mm-hmm. You know, that's John F. Kennedy and Marilyn. No, that's not right. Um, the patriarchs look like kind of Jewish people in hats and robes, maybe. The hairstyles would be kind of different and older. I mean, you get cues, and also they're in hell, and it's part of a religious context. And you've heard the story before, so that helps. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to go on a limb here. If your only method of storytelling is visual, and it's kind of like, well, if your only method of storytelling is storytelling, then it's such a part of tradition that big brothers show it to little brothers, fathers sell it to sons. You know, it's like, okay, here's the picture of this. This is him because dad told me this is him because dad told me this is him, right? So I'm going to go on a limb and say, yes, everyone knew who everyone was because it was a part of society that was integral. Yeah. These are stories we've all heard before. Yeah. I mean, at the time. I hadn't. And that's interesting to me, too, is why... Is that completely left out of the Easter story in so many Christian sects? It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense anymore. The legends that it was based on kind of died out. By the 1600s, for most people, hell was a very bad place. There was no one to rescue there because that's where the bad people went. Oh. You wouldn't rescue the sinners. They were sinners. So hell was already hell. It didn't need to be harrowed. By the time the the Protestant denominations rolled around, yes. Like 2014, right? No. 2000, yeah. No, now I'm screwed up. No, the 1600s. Okay. Thereabouts. Yeah, because hell was full of bad people. There was no one to save. So, so it became a story strictly about people on earth being redeemed. It was just confusing. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of scriptural basis for it anyway. That's true. It's, mm-hmm. it's very lightly mentioned there. It mostly turns up in like Apocrypha and Pseudepigraphia and like miscellaneous things that don't really make it to the Bible proper. And then every every branch of Christianity has its own unique Bible. I don't really know what the what these versions do. So it was just it didn't make sense as a part of the new stories that were being told in the 1600s. It was part of an older like series of legends. But I think it carried in like the medieval mystery play tradition, which maybe was stronger here or there. Hmm. But it just didn't need to make it into like the liturgies and things of the Protestant churches. They were simplifying, trying to get rid of a lot of garbage and clean up their stuff and make a new story. And that was something that just got left out because it didn't make sense. And I feel like this is this is this is a problem. Like this is a failure of imagination because much like in order to make costs lower for animation (laughs) (laughs) we went to this this terrible period of the warner brothers cartoons with just like these very abstract backgrounds and drawings reused reused backgrounds etc etc 
as opposed to the, the previous generations of lush animation and backgrounds mm. and music and things. I feel like the Protestant church definitely lost some opportunities by not keeping the story because it is so like, okay, what happened during those three days? He's just dead. Like, that's one of the reasons why I was just like, I don't understand what we're celebrating. Like this person was, he's dead. Yeah. You, you and roll the rock. Everybody's mourning and yeah. yeah like And confused. then three days later, we're just randomly mm-hmm. walking by. Guys, somebody moved the boulder. Yeah. They, right. They, they ditched the big action sequence. They did. Because it just added too much padding. And, you know, the Protestant faiths tended to cut a lot of the trappings and the pageantry and things like that, too. Mm. That's one of the big divisions. Uh, can I talk about bad animation, though, since you brought it up? Yes. Yes. I love talking about bad animation. So I found this really neat Easter egg in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Wait, like an was, actual Easter egg? No, a figurative mm. Easter egg. Oh. This it's made, probably pretty smelly by now. <laughs> this made me so happy. So what happened was I read the Gospel of Nicodemus and then immediately watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the uh, 1976 animated version from Britain. Why? In sequence, because I was researching. Oh. And and I saw something I'd never seen before. So towards the end of the film and book, there's a scene where Aslan, who is you know allegorically God slash Jesus, he dies on a big stone table, which is the cross, and he gets back up because when an innocent person dies of his own free will, it breaks the bonds of sin and death. Breaks the bonds of sin and death is a major flag for people that are medievalists and interested in the descent into the land of the dead. Shortly thereafter, he gets up and he goes off to the castle of the White Witch, where there's this garden of every person the witch has ever imprisoned, and they've all been turned into stone statues. Right. This is the land of the dead, and these are the people that death has imprisoned. Remember, everything in the Chronicles of Narnia is an allegory. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Including the the gay centaurs, right? No, that was just an allegory for gay centaurs. No, okay. When I was 11, like 60 years ago, and I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it was fiction to me. Like, I know as an adult, it was allegorical, but I don't remember reading it in context or out of... Like, what? I remember the, the Statue of Stones. How deep the allegory goes... Aslan starts reanimating the statues, right? And he turns them back into their living counterparts, and that's that's redeeming, that's freeing the dead. The first one he frees, and this bothered me for years because it's like, well, that's so narcissistic. Is he frees a lion first? Oh, but hmm. so he's a, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Leo. He's a Leo. No, mm-hmm. it's it's better than that. The first person that Jesus frees in the medieval mystery plays is Adam who is the only other creature made in God's image. They're brothers. They're practically twins. So Aslan the lion frees a lion first. It's Adam. I thought that was so neat. Wow. 11-year-old me is still confused. <laughs> well, 11-year-old me just, and still, like, I, Turkish delight. Turkish a delight. Disappointment. Yeah. Oh, t- oh mm. yeah. It is kind of disgusting. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, that was that was my minutia moment. I love that. I, I was so happy when I found that out because it just kind of ties the entire allegory together. And remember, C.S. Lewis is Anglican. He's part of that long tradition that goes back to 3 AD. <laughs> Boy, is he ever. Yeah. I have to say, though, I feel like they filmed that same 
Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they filmed that in the same place that they filmed the Santa versus the Devil movie. It did not age well. No, it did not age well. And I don't think it started well either. No. I feel like there was some shoddy construction. So the Gospel of Nicodemus, if you've read it, which no one has. (laughs) No. It's the first mass market version of The Harrowing of Hell. It was published in about, well, it was written somewhere in the early 300s and was kind of mass produced and distributed in the maybe 350 or so thereabouts. So it's pretty soon after like the Bible had been kind of nailed down and Christianity was really starting to spread as a powerhouse religion. And it's a two-parter for the most part, and there's some really weird parts. The first 12 chapters or so, it's a lot of Pilate trying to convince the Jews not to crucify Christ, and the Jews saying, no, we really want to crucify Christ. So it's kind of just feeds that medieval anti-Semitic myth there um, for 20 or so pages. I can't really recommend the first half. It does have some good scenes where he's trying to like convince them that Jesus is not a bad guy because the flags and and things are bowing to him. And I, I look at him, but you know he's working on the Sabbath by healing people, so he's a bad person. Hmm. So the bridge is that Jesus has gotten back up, and they're a little upset that he got back up um, on a weekend, no less. Um, <laughs> and so they're trying to figure out what had happened, because they I don't know. I think they want to judge him again. And they find out there are two more people that have gotten back up as well. And these guys are just kind of hanging out in town, like they're doing church stuff. And... No one is really freaked out that there's these two resurrected guys um, doing three. church stuff. Three resurrected guys. Three. They can't really find Jesus. Oh. Like the eggs. <laughs> eggs. So was it John the Baptist? Who were the resurrected guys? Um, I, their names are their names are Carinus and Lentheus. They're the sons of... A priest who said nice things about Jesus when he was what? like four years old. I was thinking Lazarus and John the Baptist. No, Lazarus gets a lot of mentions. He he's was kind, pre. He was kind right? of, yeah. yeah, he was way before. He, he's kind uh-huh. of a big name in hell at this point because. It's foreshadowing. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, exactly, exactly that. No, this is the sons of the priest that was kind of nice to Jesus in the temple when he was four. So um, this is like nepotism, like a little bit of like, I scratch your back. I, yeah, that's I'll fair. bring your dead sons back to life. So the crowd goes to these two kids and says, hey, what's going on? And they said, well, we have this story. And so they flash back to all of the crowd of like the blessed patriarchs and Adam and everybody who's important in the Old Testament hanging out in hell, just kind of being tormented by distance from God, etc. And they're kind of excited because one of them saw this like big flash of purple light. And they say, yeah, we saw this big flash of purple light. And someone else says, yeah, that's that's God light. That's really great. This is good news. And they do some head math and say, it's been 5,000 years since this fall of ban. It's the millennium. Happy Millennium Day. And they blow the little candles. <laughs> millennium. Vuvuzela. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they would have had the first Vuvuzela. Yeah. And they're getting excited. And then, like, the evil people show up. And it's really confusing because there's either two or three. There's too many Satans. Too many Satans. Too many Satans. But there's, there's a good reason for it. So we meet, like, the Satan who is able to go upstairs and has actually put the crucifixion plans into place to get Jesus killed. He's that bad. Are we talking upstairs from hell, which is earth, or upstairs from yes. earth, which is heaven? Ups- uh, okay, so he goes from hell slash Gehenna to the, the land of the living. Satan, you know, he tormented Job. He's fairly active in the world at this point. Hmm. Um, he's, he's the adversary. He does the, He causes problems. 
And his most recent problem is he's set up Jesus to die, thus condemning him to the land of the dead where everybody goes, right? The other main character is, I think it's Beelzebub, but it's also Hades. It's the concept of death personified. Hmm. And this is useful because this lets Jesus beat up Satan, but there's still death. So it's kind of a good literary device to split these two characters up. But it gets really confusing because Satan is the prince of hell and Hades is death. Wait, Satan is the prince of death and Hades is hell and death at the same time. I I really got lost. Too Um, many Satans. Too many Satans. Um, Is there a Thanatos or an Abaddon? Yes, there is a Thanatos, but I think it's Beelzebub. Who is, if you'll remember, a Baal and a god of death. Man, I know it's really. I feel like this is this is a this is a top heavy uh, corporate structure. <laughs> it's very it's very hard to parse. Also, I think both death and Hades are separate names at one point in time. It's kind of confusing, but it boils down to there's two main baddies. I'm going to call them Stan and Belzy. Stan and Belzy. Okay. Okay. So Stan- can I just say in my head, this two resurrected kids are Rod and Todd from The Simpsons. I'm just going to like throw I that out there. Totally okay. buy that. Does, does Stan wear satin? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Stan is thrilled because he's finally gotten Jesus to come to hell. Bilzi is like, no, do you remember like six weeks ago where he raised someone from the dead? And it wasn't, he didn't ask God to do it. He did it himself. You are Mm. bringing this person who can raise the dead to the land of the dead. Do you see the problem with that? And Satan's like, oh, no, no, it's no problem. This is going to be awesome. We've been working with this for so, so it's great. It's going to be great. Jesus gets out his megaphone and says, Lift up your gates, O ye princes, and ye be lift up everlasting gates, and the king of glory shall come in. And Satan kind of panics, and Beelzebub just says, Get out. Just get out. Told you so. Yeah, big time. And so Jesus kicks the door in and stomps up and down on Satan. And it's all the Old Testament characters start singing, and they're repeating everything they know about the Messiah, like it's trivia night at the synagogue. And it's just a bunch of craziness. And Jesus says, every chain is broken. Yay. And there's this wash of God light. And JC comes in and everybody's kind of damn. And he's wearing his big devil stomping boots. And he jumps up and down on Satan and kicks him out. It's too hot for devil stomping boots. These are devil stomping sandals. I feel like, yeah, they're they're like Tevas or something. Like you could hike in them too. Like, Um, but these are like awesome boots. This is this is the magnificent warrior drag queen Christ. Thick, mm, so they're not like thick soled okay. studded Birkenstocks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. Uh-huh. That works. yeah. Beelzebub does some interesting things here. He says that Jesus is innocent. He says that Jesus is good. He hasn't done anything wrong. And that's the real problem. This, this Jesus is not touched by original sin. And he knows that everything is a house of cards. It's going to explode. And so he kind of says to Jesus, this guy's yours. And Jesus says, okay. Jesus binds up Stan and says, okay, Billsy, you're in charge forever. Then everybody flies up into heaven. Zoom. And that's the story. And the adversary is actually bound in a pit for a very long time. The management becomes a little more cautious. It's the concept of death, not the concept of punishment and hell anymore. See, like I, I, I listen to this and I, it sounds like a corporate takeover, but through nepotism and hubris, <laughs> I, <rather than laughs> I think that's that's fair it's like it's it's a feudal takeover yeah jesus is putting yeah. this guy in charge of the land of the dead and he's in charge of him because he put him in that position yeah i also just want to point out randomly that in this book the harrowing of hell stan looks very much like a slea stack from land of the lost uh 
which is thumbs up for my in my in my mind. <laughs> in this corporate takeover, when it would have been more profitable to like liquefy all the assets, they instead just put in their own puppet CEO and kept working at a loss. Uh right. It's a little bit. I it's a little bureaucratic. I don't So this is like a Marvel Universe reset sort of moment here. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because before then, there were all these people that were piling up in hell because they had nowhere to go and they hadn't heard the good news of Jesus Christ and his amazing spiked Birkenstocks. In, in some versions, he goes and he talks to all the people and says, hey, this is the happy thing that's happened. Uh, y'all are free if you want to be free and takes them up into heaven. Um, but it's a conversion moment for all of the uh, Old Testament figures as well. Hmm. So this is this is a turning point for them. And maybe some of them stayed behind. I don't know. I really don't know. Probably not, because that's not part of the story. I bet Methuselah stayed. He was old. He liked the warmth. <laughs> I feel like that's an interesting story that I, I would like to know more about. Like, who stayed? Why did they stay? Uh, the Middle Ages did not like ambiguity so much. So mm-hmm. I think it was pretty much a fresh start. But after that, people that didn't hear about Jesus might go to hell. And bad people would go to hell, because then you had the judgment hell as opposed to just the storage unit hell. Hmm. So this this is a fresh start in some ways. I like that you mentioned the Marvel Universe because I I, I will say that in reading about the harrowing of hell and all of the, the characters involved, it did read like the Wikipedia entry for <laughs> WandaVision. Yes. There's a lot. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just name everybody that they can from the uh, Happy Old Testament. And and it's an affirmation. These people are going to heaven. That's great. It's it's a celebration. Every. It links the two traditions of like the Christianity and the Jewish faith, too, in some ways. Mm. Everybody that chooses to can get a fresh start. So it lets this new religion kind of proceed forward guilt-free, too, which is also nice. Well, here's a question. And we can, we can probably not actually answer this, but we can, we can make stuff up. But, okay, say you are freed from this situation. You, just, you, you have been in the, in the underworld. You've been in the land of the dead for how many you know centuries somebody comes along and says you're free now is that a good thing do you feel like what do you do i mean do you know that there's a heaven do you are you kind of um a little bit do you have some 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 fear of like well this is what i know why what's where will i go now um a lot of the language is that he's awakening the sleepers so maybe there really wasn't a before there was just kind of slumbering in the grave so, okay. So there was, death was death. There was no, there was nothing until Jesus awakened the sleepers. And now there's the possibility of an afterlife that is not the underworld. Death is death. Yeah. Now there, this had always been the case because at, at the millennium, whenever that happened, you know, next year, when the savior arrives, when the Messiah arrives, whoever that is, not necessarily JC, part of the Messianic tradition was that the Messiah would lead everybody to the kingdom of God. The Messiah story contained the resurrection of the dead. So you had to have Jesus doing this because he was, for the Christians, the Messiah. It unifies the old story and the new again. Another query, and this may be, this may have to, to, to be a new segment called Pretend I'm an Idiot. <laughs> but I was wondering, is there any relationship between this story of the harrowing of hell and the disruption of hell and coming down and like kicking ass and whatnot with the crusades. Like, was this any sort of, was this narrative used to 
justify the Crusades at all? Well, I mean, this is part of Christian's marketing story, that after this, people need to be taught about Jesus or they might end up in the bad place and not go to the good place because now there was a bad place. Actually, Dante did something really kind of brilliant here. The medieval conception of hell it was that it had four layers. There was the hell of the damned, where people suffered in, in pain. There was purgatory, which is this kind of transitional place that you can get out of eventually, particularly if you pay the church lots of money. And there was the limbo of the patriarchs, which was an empty space because Jesus emptied it. And I actually don't know, and I think no one really knows, whether Jesus just went down to the limbo of the patriarchs and freed everybody or whether he went all the way down to the bottom of hell and came back up. I've heard that go either way. And then there's the limbo of dead babies. Um, oh, the dead babies. Dead babies. Yep. Yeah, which is also also a thing. So um, many dead babies. So in Dante's Inferno, limbo is not a bad place at all, uh, but it's not just the limbo of the patriarchs. He also says that in the story, Dante says, what happens to someone who happened to be born on the River Indus? This is a place where good pagans can go, virtuous pagans. And that's kind of new. So while Dante's limbo is not directly connected to God and therefore not a great place, his version of limbo, which has been cleared out from all the Jewish patriarchs, is a place where benevolent pagans can go. There's actually an Islamic prince in there, hmm. which is hmm. kind of amazing for a middle-aged, middle-aged poet. Okay. To go back, to kind of cement a concept, you were saying death is death. Death is death, but death is not the end. Or rather, death was death, but death was not the end, right? So you've got yes. these souls that have died, and now they're in Gehenna, and they're just sleeping. Yes. Because we... Uh, okay. I don't have a end to that thought. But so we we can introduce some new words here, which I think Ooh. we'll get back to later on. Um, mm-hmm. Annihilationism. Annihilationism. Please explain annihilationism. Annihilationism is the idea that bad people are destroyed utterly and have no immortality. Okay. Uh, contrasted or related to conditional immortality, which is that good people do live forever um, in some form or another. Mm. So it may be that there were no bad people to free because they were burned up. That's kind of what I've heard the Old Testament version of Judaism kind of believed, is that there was no immortality for bad people. They just got consumed by the flame, and that was it for them. So there's also no punishment for them. Well, there's no immortality, which is kind of punishment, but there's no like pointless, endless suffering, which is kind mm-hmm. of nice I mean, in a certain way. Yeah, maybe you die by the fire. Ow, it hurts, and now I'm dead. Right. Um, and there's a lot of arguing on either side of that. I'm really hoping to get a guest speaker to talk more about this thing because there's an entire podcast devoted to it. But for now, I think it does kind of feed into the story because there may not have been any bad people in hell to liberate. They might have all been gone. Hmm. 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 Okay. So kind of wrapping up this, the, the idea of the harrowing of hell, uh, it's the question of why was it necessary? It proved that Jesus was human. He died. Hmm. He went to hell. Or he died. He went to shale. All humans die. All humans go to shale. He was a mortal person. Do you, um, could, you, could you explain what shale is? I feel like that's the first time you've said that word, this. Well, if you listen to episode one. Um, oh, <laughs> I haven't listened to it. Ouch. Wow. Ouch. Burn. There's several different words that get shuffled around, and they're all translated as into hell if you read like a modern Bible. But they're all different words in Old Testament Hebrew slash Greek. 
Um, Sheol is the grave. It's the gray wasteland. Um, it's just where the dead go. There's no judgment there. Um, Gehenna is sometimes the burning place where burning bad people go or just the place where bad people are concerned, concerned, where bad people are concerned. I'm concerned. <laughs> consumed. Um, and then there's a couple others. Tartarus is the land of the dead, um, but really, really bad dead, like the Titans and things like that. Uh, and there's one or two other versions. Uh, the the black, way, the black Void or something like that, the Black Abyss. Sheol is the kind of the Jewish afterlife or after death. It's, it's the storage place for the dead. It's the grave. Alrighty, thank you. The Herring of Hell cleans up hell for the next generation. It gets the patriarchs out, frees us from guilt of that sort of thing, and lets us kind of start over with the new story of salvation, redemption, and forgiveness. Uh, for good or bad, I'm not going to say that it really is on either side of that line. That's someone else's discussion. Satan... For a few hundred years, at least, we are the cause of our own salvation because Satan is not actively causing problems. Mm. That's kind of nice. Is this the part where we say, where, O death, is now thy sting? Yes. Actually, that comes up several times in several different versions of the story. It provides closure. It emphasizes redemption. It provides story closure for the whole life of Jesus and kind of an Act 2 transition to Act 3. And as a kind of a side effect, it also kind of distinguishes the Christian congregation from the Jewish congregation and puts some distance in there that might come back to hurt us later on. It establishes a strong, clear relationship between God and the devil, which gets rid of a lot of ambiguity and just makes storytelling easier for a few hundred years mm. before we really get into like firm, dualistic Satan is roughly equal to God in terms of power that you get later on. Uh, why the tradition kind of died out? Um, hell... Sheol, Tartarus were all different places. Uh, it became confusing to keep them separate. There was just hell as we move on. Important, up till about 500 AD, we were expecting Jesus to come back any day now. Hmm. As it turns out, he didn't. So the need for this kind of resurrection millennial story kind of faded because we're not expecting Jesus. He's more of an allegory uh, as we move past 500. The millennium is not now. It's much later. Middle Ages Satan was funny. He was like Pratt Falls farts and fireworks up the butt. Uh, and in the 1500s, he started becoming really dangerous. Heresy, witch trials, that sort of thing. So Satan changed and hell changed. And just our cultural relationship with death changed in so many ways. Uh, and so when you get around to the 1600s, yeah, there just isn't a home for this story anymore. Okay. Hmm. I, I, I kind of feel better about not knowing any of this. Despite the, I mean, obvious like reason is that I'm dumb, but. You know, like I, I, I wouldn't say that. I did say that. You did say that. I changed, yeah. <laughs> I, cha I changed my mind. Rewind. You're, you're not dumb. You're in an alternate Star Trek continuity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So I learned something about myself, which, you know, self-identity, self-discovery, um, and the concept of harrowing. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to see a bit of, of greater depth of Jamin? I'd, I'd love that. I've been paying money for that for years. I've been waiting for this moment. So last episode, we discovered that Victoria isn't Catholic. <laughs> it's true. It's, 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 it's very I, true. Now we know this. I was shocked. Mm -hmm. So I actually kind of like moderately self-identify as Chinese. I was born in China. I have made in Taiwan stamped on my butt. It's true. Okay, so 
Uh, Chinese names. My name in Chinese, and I'll break it down for you, is Bi Xingang. The surname is Bi, which is um, graduation or culmination, completion. And I, I may link some characters in the show notes. Um, and so my name, Xingang, is Xin is heart, like the heart that lives in your chest, the, the source of love. Gung is the first part of a compound word, which is Gung Yun, which means to make fallow to prepare for harvest. Huh. Right? And this is very, very nice. Um, in China, auspicious name, auspicious, that's the word. Names are auspicious. So like a young lady might be named Ai Hong, which is love's red. Or patriotica. And these are your names. Oh, hey, patriotic. How you doing, patriotic Smith? And so this, this compound name, myself and my brother, he's Xin Yun, and I'm Xin Gang, and so together we are those who prepare a heart, or who take a heart and make it fallow for a better harvest. And Aww. and my friends were like, "Wow, this is very auspicious," because most people who get names given to them, they're like, "Oh, your name is Mike. Well, your Chinese name is Mike. Or your name is Dave. Uh, your name is Dave Da Wei, right? Which means like the big way or." Or wet paper towels. And so my friends... For example. Yeah, and this is... I had a friend whose name was Wet Paper Towels. He was... We lived together for three years. The actual truth is, the name Xin Gangyun is actually just he who harries hearts, the harrowing of hearts. And I'm like, oh, well, that's actually more logical for Jamin in 2021. Has your heart been harrowed? Have you met Jamin? Is that part of your Tinder profile? Because if not, it really should it, be. I, <laughs> I actually use Bumble because it's, it's easier to swipe. My fingers are sticky sometimes. Um, but no, it, it wasn't because I didn't know this about myself until like 12 minutes ago when I opened the web page and was like, Google, what is harrowing? So yes, it will change. Uh, wow. Jamin, That's a- harrower of hearts. I love this. I really, really love this. I, I, I don't know. I have so many ideas for what for the Pretty stop nice. motion <laughs> animations we're going to make. Well, thank you for listening. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for listening. And again, happy Easter. Happy Those Easter! Yay! I feel like that should have a question mark there, like happy Easter? Question mark? No, it's, a, it's an important day. If you're celebrating it, happy Easter. Even if that's um, Easter into a bang. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would follow us on your favorite podcast platform or follow us on all of the podcasting platforms. And consider leaving us a review on iTunes. We're new and it's a long way to podcast visibility, and this is a huge help to us. But in the meantime, we'll see you in hell. Bye. This podcast is copyright 2021 by The Dispatchist and its Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for more episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.
Wait. Is the show over? Oh. Bye. Jamin, go home. <laughs>